0: You will likely find that the most common choice among anesthesia providers is an FiO2 of 60%. It has become a habit, and unfortunately, I don't think we stop to ask ourselves why we do it. Oxygen seems like a harmless drug. Heck, the World Health Organization has said we should run all patients at an FiO2 of greater than 80%. However, today I'll discuss why they got it wrong and what the problem is with high FiO2. First, let's discuss the World Health Organization's recommendations of high FiO2 and why they are flawed. This is not just my opinion, so I will cite some of the evidence for my claims. There's nothing wrong with the World Health Organization, they just did a bad meta-analysis. So what did they say? In 2016, they published guidelines to reduce surgical side infections. Part of these guidelines were based on a meta-analysis of literature and concluded that any patient being anesthetized Intubated and mechanically ventilated for surgery should receive 80% oxygen during anesthesia and, if feasible, for two to six hours after surgery. In 2017, hedin et al. published an article in Anesthesiology where they stated that the recommendations are still surprising because they are not well-founded, make a superficial analysis of potential negative effects of breathing 80% FiO2, and suggest that oxygen should be produced in hospitals without analyzing costs, risks, and priorities this would entail in both developed and developing countries. So I'm going to talk about some of those assertions. The last one first is the easiest, just the idea that developing countries really can't afford to produce oxygen in-house, more or less. Um, so trying to say the whole world should follow this is really a bit outlandish. The biggest issue with their recommendation is their meta-analysis itself. The results of the meta-analysis are extremely weak. Its test for overall effect had a p-value of 0.14. So what does that mean? Well, for a test to be statistically significant, the p-value needs to be less than 0.05. If you want a stronger result, you may even aim for a p-value of less than 0.01. So the meta-analysis did not find significant difference. The and article goes on to echo this, stating that the primary result of their meta-analysis is the absence of significant difference in surgical site infections between high FiO2 and low FiO2 groups. High FiO2 is defined as 80% or greater, and low FiO2 is generally defined as 30 to 35%. So the lack of difference just tells us that one approach is not superior to the other. It does not tell us that high FiO2 should be used. Hedden sterna goes on to state that the conclusions of the recommendations are based solely on a subgroup of intubated and mechanically ventilated patients, even though the subgroup does not appear to have been identified before the study. This sounds a lot like adjusting your parameters and hypotheses during a study, which is just bad science. It's completely reasonable to find something you weren't expecting when you do a study, and then perform a new study to assess this new finding. However, to make recommendations based on the findings is unacceptable. Another issue with the meta-analysis is that Grief et al. in 2000 were the first to report on positive effects of high FIO2. Stierna states that basically the same group in 2015 published an article that showed no beneficial effects. In 2013, Hovogwiemian et al. published a meta-analysis which showed that high FiO2 reduced surgical site infection. However, Head & states that this meta-analysis contains a study by Miles et al. from 2007 in which the low FiO2 group was actually a mixture of nitrous and oxygen. If this study is removed from the Hovoguimian meta-analysis, the findings are no longer statistically significant. I read the Miles article and they state within the article that nitrous is a risk factor for surgical site infection. The aim of the article was to see if avoidance of nitrous would decrease surgical site infection. However, they did perform further analysis on their data and stated that data from the nitrous oxide free group, AKA high FiO2, were analyzed to determine whether there was an independent effect of supplemental oxygen on key outcomes. After adjusting for pre-specified potential confounding variables, there was no measurable effect of supplemental oxygen on hospital stay, ICU stay, wound infection, or severe nausea or vomiting, but there was reduction in fever. So they found that high fio 2 really doesn't help reduce surgical site infection. And this same article by Miles was included in the World Health Organization meta-analysis, an article that's really not comparing apples to apples. The fact that nitrous is known to increase surgical site infection I feel like introduces a large confounding variable when that's the same group used in these meta-analyses as a low FiO2 group. One last point, I know this statistics stuff can be boring. The World Health Organization meta-analysis looked at 11 studies with intubated and mechanically ventilated patients under general anesthesia. Of these 11, three should be excluded, the Miles article we just discussed being 1 since it really is not comparing apples to apples. The other two are by Sheertroma Research Group. In 2019, Miles et al., the same Miles that was the lead author for the article we just discussed, published an article showing that Sheertroma's work should not be used to inform practice until further investigated. Five trials by this group were retracted for duplication, plagiarism, statistical error, and lack of ethical approval. Miles analyzed 40 papers by this group and found compromised data integrity in 38 of them. A meta-analysis by Cohen showed initially decreased surgical site infection when looking at 20 trials, but was no longer significant after removing the seven trials by Sheetroma. Hopefully after this you understand why the World Health Organization's recommendations should be seen as flawed. Now what should you do about FiO2? Well, Morgan and McHale state you should not run your FiO2 greater than 30% unless you have a reason, you know like desaturation. Think back to your ICU time. When did you ever have a patient with an FiO2 greater than 40%? ARDS or some such nasty process which required specialized ventilating systems like APRV? We rarely see these types of patients in the OR. When we do, they will come with their vent and we will we will leave them on that vent because our anesthesia machines cannot do that type of mode. So if our patients are not in these dire straits, then why run High FiO2? There really isn't a good reason. Some may say it's just in case. In case of what though? They become disconnected from the vent? The ET2 becomes dislodged? Some other unforeseen circumstance? Sure, these things could happen, But using this same reasoning, we should give every patient six liters of fluid and a couple units of blood just because there could be a lot of bleeding. Now you might think but that amount of fluid can be bad, but oxygen's harmless, it's in the atmosphere. This is true, oxygen is in the atmosphere, but only at 21%. There is good data that shows that high FiO2 increases postoperative pulmonary complications and 30-day mortality. Even if there were strong evidence that high FiO2 decreased surgical site infection, which I have yet to find, the increased mortality and other potential harms may not be worth the benefit. Another issue with high FiO2 is that it leads to absorption atelectasis. Essentially, high FiO2 causes atelectasis due to washing out nitrogen. We know that within five minutes of onset of general anesthesia, 90% of patients experience some amount of atelectasis and atelectasis is the most common cause of desaturation in PACU. So why does atelectasis happen? Think about a hose attached to a rubber balloon. The water is turned on, and water fills the balloon. This balloon has a hole in the far side and is leaking water as quick as it comes in, but the balloon is currently full. Now what happens if you put a little bit of a kink in the hose? The water will leak out faster than it's coming in, and the balloon will deflate. This is in essence what you could think of as happening when you induce a patient. Their musculature that is holding open the small airways relaxes and the diaphragm moves cephalad, which also helps to compress the small airways. This all leads to diminished flow into the alveoli, but the body will continue to take up oxygen at the same rate. So the alveoli start to collapse like a leaking balloon. Now what happens with high FiO2? Well, back to the water hose example. What happens if you make the leak larger? If the water flow does not change, the balloon will collapse. Think of high FiO2 as making the leak bigger. This is because nitrogen usually stays in the alveoli and splints them open, because oxygen is preferentially absorbed by the blood. If you wash out the nitrogen with high FiO2, there is no longer that support to help keep the alveoli open, and the blood loves to absorb the oxygen. Now when you combine both, the decreased flow and increased leak, it will really collapse quickly. This is in essence what happens with induction. High FiO2 and then compression of small airways. What should you do about it? I don't think anyone would advocate for not giving high FiO2 prior to induction. Too much really could go wrong. So you just have to take measures to reverse the atelectasis. These would be recruitment maneuvers and PEEP. The recruitment maneuvers reverse atelectasis, and PEEP will prevent atelectasis from occurring again. Also, limiting FiO2 will help prevent the propensity for atelectasis. Well, hopefully this has improved your understanding, and thanks for listening.